music can be a powerful tool. When the presenters present it appropriately, when the words and the musical features just boister the truth, and it's no fair that I have to preach after that, <laughs> okay? I think we all would, I, at least in my wisdom, think that we would all would profit more just by spending time in reflection about that God. Why do we have troubles? Why do we take these anxieties on when that's our God? Well, I will answer for myself, and I'm going to use a word that I'm not allowed to use at home because I'm stupid, okay? It's a no-no word in the Goodwill household. You say, well, that's stupid. Well, you're welcome to call it that, but not in my house. Because kids will do whatever they see done. In fact, that's what we experienced with our play experience. Uh, We came to the Saturday matinee, and I would just say thank you all who worked so hard. It was a delightful experience. I went home and discovered that my oldest wants to be the actor. Okay, that's what she wants to be. My middle, my son, wants very much to understand everything about the stage and Mr. Aachen was kind enough to take him backstage and show him a few things. And my youngest, who did not attend, she just likes to be the center of attention anyway. <laughs> well, when I got home uh, from the play, shortly after, they actually put on a little play for me. It was called The Farmer and the Bumblebee, written and produced by Alexander Goodwill. And it was fascinating, because I had my youngest, who must be the center of attention, And she had these little butterfly wings on her, but she was supposed to be a bumblebee. And so she's going all around the living room, hopping up and down. And then my son's pretending to be the farmer, and he's digging with his lightsaber into the carpet. (laughs) And I'm not quite sure what the point of the story is, but at the end, the bumblebee socked the farmer. And (laughs) coming to a stage near you in 2035... Stories are awesome, though, are they not? I love hearing stories. I love reading short stories. Emphasis on short. Uh, I love telling stories, too. Why? Because stories communicate in ways that just saying a simple truth cannot. For instance, would you rather have a statement that I give you about the importance of preparation or hear about the most embarrassing night of my life that had to do with duo acting? What about if I just tell you it is really good to be recognized for good things rather than to show up on the local news because your church flooded during an election? Here's a great story. Or just talk about the joys of relationships and all the different stages. Would you rather just help me say it's fun and exciting and dangerous? Or tell you about the first time I told Heidi I love you and she didn't talk for the next three minutes. It worked. (laughs) Or the dangers of fixating on small details rather than big picture items. I could tell you that, or I could tell you the story of an orphan squirrel in the dorm that still has me scarred to this day. You want to hear these stories? I take my coffee black, and in large amounts, bring me coffee, and I will share any of them with you. But when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we have a story that Paul is talking about. And the story is not going to have a moral at the end of it. Paul's not going to say, therefore, uh, 21st century believers, you should do this or that. The story, though, is still there for our instruction. 
It illustrates something that is true about Paul that ought to be true about all of us who are seeking to do God's work in this world. And when you look at the first word of chapter 3, verse 1, it says, wherefore. And this is where Dr. Brock, when he preached his message about transcendent relationships, really set us up to understand what's happening there. He left us in that challenge by saying this, be intentional about creating transcendent, transcending relationships. And that might leave us with a how. How do I develop those, or what do those look like in my life? And that's what Paul's going to get into. God-honoring relationships look a certain way. And Paul's not going to say, therefore, you must do this, this, and this. Instead, through the story of how he dealt with Thessalonica, he's going to illustrate it. And so let us go ahead and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 together. It says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for ye yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when, you were, when we were with you, we told you before that ye should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sensed to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. And so in one way, the sermon could be really short. Paul was concerned, Paul sent Timothy, Paul was concerned again. That's all we need to know. Well, that's the description. But what is being illustrated here is a simple truth, and that is this. God-honoring relationships must have God-honoring qualities. God-honoring relationships must have God-honoring qualities. There are certain things that must be true, otherwise we really have to doubt if this is something that honors God, like we might think that it honors God. God. And so Paul's going to illustrate these within this context of being concerned about the believers. I think there's a good implication there, and that is that God uses these God-honoring relationships with these God-honoring qualities to help us in times of trouble. It's a part of God's plan to help us through. These relationships are important. So what are those qualities? Well, look back at verse 1. When we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus. Notice what Paul's relationship with the church first led him to do. It led him to be sacrificial. Sacrificial. He had this close relationship, and when he grew concerned, not just anxious and worried, but biblically concerned about their well-being, what did he end up doing? He ended up sending them somebody who should have been helping himself. Notice, though, it does say, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. That's going to be an important truth when we get down to verse 5. But what is Athens? Remember, Acts 17, there you have Paul on Mars Hill, and he's standing by himself to a completely pagan culture, proclaiming the one true God who holds all men accountable but sends all men the Savior, and very few believe. It's a hostile environment, 
and the Thessalonians have the whole church to help them. Who helping Paul? Paul doesn't care about that. Well, I'm sure Paul felt it. But that doesn't stop Paul from in this relationship being sacrificial. And notice the quality of the guy that he sent. He didn't send the one who was sitting the bench, okay? When the coach tells you that filling the water bottles is a really important job, okay, it is important. But he sent the all-star. That's who he sent along the way. Timothy, his, his son in the faith. He calls him brother. He calls him God's fellow worker. He calls him a fellow laborer in the ministry of the gospel. This is an important person to, to Paul. And Paul said, rather than me taking him and having him be a benefit to me, I am going to give him up for the church. Sacrifice is a quality of God honoring relationships. So what about our relationships? We say that they are God-honoring, or at least I hope you say that they are God-honoring. It's a whole other thing to be there and say, nope, all my relationships are bad. If there are, bring me coffee and we'll talk. But what about ours? You know, I don't think, honestly, I would ever tell somebody this relationship that I have is manipulative. Or this relationship I have is all about me. But let's really evaluate the relationships that we do have. What are they like? Well, first of all, are they sacrificial? What might it look like to be sacrificial in our relationships? Can I just give you a very down-to-earth, practical things that might happen today in a sacrificial, God-honoring relationship? Guys and girls, it might look like you putting down a video game controller and making eye contact with your roommate and asking them, how was your day? And when they go, eh. Not being like, okay, deed done, checklist, I'm spiritual. But following up with that and saying, all right, let's talk, taking a personal interest those of you who have that special someone on campus, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or the boy that you are talking to, perhaps today that looks like you sitting down with that other person and saying, we have these five meals that we always eat together. Let's only eat four of them together and purposely plan to have that fifth meal with the people we're trying to invest in. You're sacrificing for the good of a different relationship. Every time we forego some desire that we have in order to meet a need, we are living out that characteristic of a God-honoring relationship. But what does it not look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like you trying to make your plans for Thursday evening, and you have this great idea of what to do, and you get your friend group together, and they're like, no way can we do that because we have all this homework. And so you look at them and you say, well, obviously you don't love me. That's manipulative. You say, well, it's, they don't love me. Well, then are they your friends, okay? When it comes to understanding sacrifice, we have to realize that first, it's not about us. And second, it's not about the other person. We're doing this because it's a God-honoring relationship. 
So first of all, first characteristic, first quality, it is sacrificial. Second one, we see at the end of verse 2, Timothy was sent to establish you and comfort you concerning your faith. It was something that was intentional, sacrificial, and now we see that it was intentional. It wasn't just meeting the needs of another just because. There was a purpose, and that purpose had everything to do with the Thessalonians' trust in God. What does it say? Concerning your faith. This isn't the gospel. This isn't the doctrine. This is their personal faith in their personal God. Paul says, I'm giving up for a reason, and that is your spiritual good. But Paul reaches that spiritual goal in two ways. Notice the uh, infinitives that are right there, at least in English, the to establish and to comfort. That is why, that's the purpose. You do this for the ultimate goal of increasing their faith. And I love these two words, and they work together. The one, establish, it means to strengthen or confirm. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, this is used in a normal way, an everyday way, to talk about Jesus, where it says that Jesus steadfastly set his mind to go to Jerusalem. He established a course of action that he knew was going to be hard for himself, but was his father's will. And that illustrates perfectly what it meant for the Thessalonians to establish, to be established. Just like Jesus confirmed his intention to go to Jerusalem, so Timothy was to confirm the Thessalonians' intention to trust God. And this was huge in Paul's ministry to this church. Set your mind, determine, confirm, establish that God's the one you're going to trust in. This is a theme that's going to come up in chapter 3, verse 13. And then if we get to the next book someday, 2 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 3, 3, these are concerns of Paul's heart that the church be strengthened or confirmed in this course of action. But the second word that's used to describe it is this word for comfort or encouragement, or exhortation. And Paul uses this word ten times in his writings to this church, eight times in this book alone. This is important. As he says, you need to be dedicated, strengthened in your faith. Here's the motivation that comes along with it, those things working together. Don't just do it because Paul says so. That's what Paul's saying. Do it because God is that God of heaven, God of ages, God of power. That ought to encourage us in our faith. Verse 3. So that no man should be moved by these afflictions. I love this imagery of to be moved or to be disturbed or to be troubled. I already mentioned I like telling stories. Let me tell you the story about the time I almost killed my son and I. Almost, so it's a happy ending. Spoiler alert. Okay. So, the church that I was at before coming here had this ancient boiler that had its own consciousness that was out to get me, okay? You know those boilers, you you light them up, they heat the whole building. If you try to buy a house with one, don't, okay? Get a furnace, get something else. Well, this was temperamental, and I had to turn on the gas, I had to hit a couple switches, and then you look through the tiny pilot hole to wait for it to go boof. And then when it goes boof, 
you, uh, you breathe a sigh of relief and we have heat in the building going forward. Well, it was a September day and I was getting ready to start it for the first time a few weeks ahead of time just because <laughs> you don't turn on the heat when you need the heat. You check to make sure it works before you need it, okay? General rule of thumb, otherwise the whole church gets mad at you and you get fired and you're you know, living underneath a bridge for the rest of your life. Don't want that to happen. So, like I normally did, I brought my son, who at the time was five years old, and he was walking around helping me with my rounds at church, and we got into the boiler room, and I flipped it on, I looked down, and I looked for that, through that little hole to get the little foof, and instead I got a boom! And I went flying backwards, and the stack on the other side went catapulting across the room, and I, my head is spinning, probably because I had a concussion, didn't go to the hospital, but my head is spinning, everything's dizzy, there's a resounding ring in my ear, my five-year-old son screeching as if somebody was trying to murder him, footsteps upstairs in the church as the pastor and the person he was trying to counsel come running down and are screaming all over the place, and you're just like, whoa, what is happening there? Can I tell you, at that moment in time, I was disturbed. There was something around me that happened that just caused everything to shake and move, quite literally. That's what Paul is trying to stop from happening in this church. Don't let those outside influences move you, disturb you, but rather when the boiler of life blows up and people are screaming and running, you're at peace. Why? Because God of heaven. Your faith is in him and you've been established and encouraged in that faith. This was all the intention that Paul had. He had this God-honoring relationship that was intentional. Solely devoted to the spiritual good of those around him. What are your goals for your relationships? I remember early dating years. My goal was simply don't mess up and be stupid. Not a good goal for a relationship. Perhaps this goal is what we need to adopt. Is this person closer to God because of my friendship? That's what Paul's God-honoring relationship was like. It was intentional. It was God-focused. It was for their spiritual good. Well, what about yours? You say, well, I don't have a bad influence on them. That wasn't the question. The question was not, are you the absence of badness? The question is, are you the presence of godliness and helping them to grow? So how recently have you read a truth in your Bible in the morning and a friend comes to mind and you share that with them in text or in conversation. Say, I know what you're going through. I read this. You see who our God is. When was the last time that you wept? You wept for a friend because you knew the heartache that they were going through, and you were just praying and asking God to help this person, and you're telling that person that you're praying for them, doing those intentional things to encourage, establish, and to point their eyes to God. And so today, let's be practical. What could this look like? Maybe it looks like being at the dining complex, sitting down for a meal, and not having your phone out. 
but instead looking across the table and saying, how's your relationship with God going? How can I be an encouragement? How can I be praying? What verses is God especially using to encourage you today and make the relationship about God because it needs to be intentional? You say, well, then can we ever talk about fantasy football? Yes, you can. There's a time and place. Can we ever just play video games together? Yes, you can. There's a time and place. But inherent, a theme of this relationship is God. God-honoring relationships are intentional. Number three, God-honoring relationships are also scriptural. Look at the middle of verse three, going through verse four. For ye yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, for verily when we were with you... We told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and ye know what's happening. Paul says, hey, you know that troubles were going to come. We told you so, and now you've experienced, and now you definitely know that troubles are come. And Paul's not being the older sibling. Ha ha, nanner nanner, told you so. You should have believed me at the first point. What is Paul doing? He's pointing their mind back to a previous truth that he had taught them. That life here below is full of hardships. And that shouldn't surprise us. Think about it this way. Genesis 4, Abel does what is right and what happens to him. He's murdered. Is that a coincidence? No. Cain was envious of God's response in his life and took it out not on God but on God's person. What about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, talking about Old Testament saints? They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute. And in case you haven't gotten the fact that life was a little rough for them and they were under persecution, here's the same word that we see in 1 Thessalonians 3, afflicted and tormented. They all understood life here below was hard. Jesus told us the same thing, John 16, 33. He says, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but I love it, he doesn't leave us there, but be of good cheer, I will overcome the earth. I have overcome the world. And then towards the end of our New Testament canon, Paul is going to write Timothy, 2 Timothy three twelve. yea, and all that will live godly in Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why? Because this world is not our home, and the world is not our friend. Can we get that through our heads? That every joy and every pleasure we experience here, and every sorrow and every pain and hardships that we have here, is not why we are here? We're here because we have an eternal God who has given us eternal salvation And we're just pilgrims walking through. Now that doesn't change the fact that there are great highs and there are great lows in life. But it does give us perspective. And that's what Paul's giving the church. Within this God-honoring relationship, he is scriptural. Pointing their situation back to what they know about God and about the Bible. So when you have a friend that's going through problems, when you have a friend who's struggling with a situation, can I encourage you, build a God-honoring relationship 
by talking about Scripture. And that might not be quoting a verse, because you have to be sensitive, okay? If I just quote this verse, is it kind of like the spiritual band-aid? Okay, now go away. I've got to go get to class. But maybe it looks like, hey, Andrew, I know you have this weighing on your mind. But do you remember three months ago when God provided, and six months ago when God provided, and ten months ago when you said that God answered that prayer? Guess what? God's still in control, Andrew. I've had friends do that, and what are they doing? They're being scriptural in their relationship with me and and helping me to have a right perspective. Are you having that same effect on your friends? A God-honoring relationship is sacrificial, it is intentional, it is scriptural. And then finally, and this might be the well-duh statement of the morning, it's personal. Say, well, isn't that the dairy definition of a relationship? Yes, but notice what Paul does in verse 5. For this cause, because he realizes that the Bible says tribulations will come and that they are currently experiencing those, for this cause, I could no longer forbear. What does it say up in verse 1? We could no longer forbear. We thought it good. Verse 5, when I no longer could forbear... I sent to know your faith. Now, is this a contradiction? No. Is Paul somehow using the royal we or have a tapeworm inside of him and that's why he can say it? No. He says, I'm specifically talking about my heart. My, Paul, heart for you. And what did this heart ultimately lead him to do? He recognized his responsibility. He recognized his personal responsibility for the spiritual welfare of these people. And he said, well, Paul was an apostle, and that was a New Testament church. I am not an apostle. Good. We got some good truth going on. So how am I supposed to do it? Well, guess what? The Bible isn't silent. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 talks about our responsibility for all the believers who are around us. He recognized responsibility. He realized the dangers Middle of verse 5, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you. There is a genuine danger for every believer. And it's not that they would lose their salvation. And for most of us, it's not that we're going to die physically out of martyrdom. But it's that middle ground where we are distracted by the world. And it leads us into outright rebellion or into outright uselessness for God. Because we are so about stuff instead of about him. And Paul didn't want that because Paul realized this relationship was worth it and he did not want it to be in vain. And that's how he closed out. And our labor be not in vain. Those who are in a God-honoring relationship care deeply for the spiritual success of those in the relationship because they see their responsibility realize the danger, and understand the potential loss. And so here's our story. There really is just a story. There's no commands, no imperatives, but there's plenty of illustrations of how we ought to be running our God-honoring relationship. So how are you doing? I got two minutes, so I can do it. Take a minute. And think of one relationship. 
the last two weeks? How have you sacrificed? How have you been intentional? How have you been scriptural? How have you shown personal attachment to it? God-honoring relationships are hard, but they are possible because of the God that we serve and the God who teaches and the God who helps us. Going back to that idea of a story, one of the things I love about stories is because of how memorable they are. You say, well, Andrew, you have uh, sacrificial, you have all these other oles, and I can't remember them because I wasn't taking notes. No problem. But can I tell you a little story? There once was a man named Paul. Paul was concerned about some friends of him, his, so he sent his best man. He sacrificed to help others grow in their faith. It was purposeful and intentional. By reminding them of a truth, it was scriptural because he was invested in them. It was personal. May God, throughout this day and the rest of this week, remind you of this story so that we can understand that God-honoring relationships must have God-honoring qualities. Father, we thank you for our time. Will you please help us to take this truth to our hearts, to use it, and to glorify you and how it's used. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.